hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. After the war with England, and again, this is in keeping with President Oaks's talk in the last conference about the Constitution, America was not yet the United States, but rather the Confederate States of America, 13 bickering little provinces, as it were. America likely would not have survived a free people had not delegates from the 13 states met in convention to form a new government with power to unite and save the Union. I talked about that a week ago. Even at that, in the Grand Convention, they're bickering, contention, stubbornness, selfishness, and power grabbing nearly ruined the entire effort. It was at the height of all of that contention, June 28th, 1787, After one particularly difficult day of contentious debate that the venerable Dr. Benjamin Franklin spoke up, his words have become immortal. He said, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks is, methinks, a melancholy proof of the imperfection of human understanding. We indeed seemed to feel our own want of political wisdom since we have been running about in search of it. In this situation, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understandings. In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers were heard, and they were graciously answered. To that kind providence we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings, that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. I, therefore, beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly 
every morning before we proceed to business. End of quote. Dr. Franklin's motion was heard, seconded, discussed, and dismissed. Prayer did not become an official practice of the Grand Convention, but it did remain a private one. The Almighty blessed the work of those men in the Convention. Perhaps, as you know, if you've read the minutes, in spite of some of them. Why did the Almighty care? I can and will only say this much. For more than a century and a half, two mighty forces have thrashed the nations of the earth, reaping freedom wherever they have gone. Those two great forces working in tandem around the world have been the American Constitutional Republic and the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Prayer is the key to power. By it, God befriended America, and she rose out of obscurity. I ask you, therefore, anew, have we, as a nation, as a state, community, as families, as individuals, have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that as a nation we no longer need his assistance? God still governs in the affairs of men. May we ever be a praying people. I humbly pray. In Doctrine and Covenants, section 63, which is this week's Come, Follow Me lesson, the Lord commanded that funds be raised and sent up to Zion to purchase the land according to the law that their enemies would not come upon them. This story is about those simple, perhaps mundane efforts to buy the land of Zion in Jackson County, Missouri. Purchasing Zion, Isaiah spoke often and eloquently about that Zion that would be established in the last days. Prophets looked forward to it and rejoiced in the knowledge. Among them, Ether, one of the Book of Mormon prophets, prophesied that in the last days, a new Jerusalem should be built upon this land under the remnant of the seed of Joseph. It was April 5, 1829, when a revelation commanded young Oliver Cowdery seek to bring forth and establish the cause of Zion, section 6. That command would be echoed again and again in Revelations early on in the Restoration. Joseph Smith would be charged and inspired by the Almighty to, quote, move the cause of Zion in mighty power for good, section 21. Now, among the saints, excitement began to mount as understanding of what Zion was and would be grew. It was to be, as Joseph learned, both a people and a place. Enoch built the first city of Zion, a people of one heart and one mind in righteousness, with no poor among them. In time, these people walked with God, and Jesus dwelt in the midst of Zion. 
until that day when they were taken from the earth with a promise that someday Enoch's city of Zion in heaven would come back to earth to greet the city of Zion, the new Jerusalem established here. Joseph and the saints knew this city had to be built and that they were to do it and that it was their only place of safety and security. But where and when? Can you imagine the sense of honor and purpose that infused those early saints to be charged with fulfilling that prophecy of establishing the perfect society of Enoch once more? They soon learned that as time marched forward, Zion would be, quote, the only people that shall not be at war one with another. Section 45. Zion had to be established as a place of refuge and safety in preparation for the Lord's second coming. All depended on it. All members of the church looked forward to finding where that Zion would be and building it up. Anticipation mounted when they learned that that Zion was to be somewhere on the western frontier of America in the land of Missouri. That's all they knew. June 6, 1831, a number of people were called to go to Missouri, and there the Lord promised he would make known the location of Zion. Section 52. July 20th, 1831, as Joseph and his friends stood near Independence, Jackson County, Missouri, the Lord revealed, This is the land of promise and the place for the city of Zion. Section 57. And the place which is now called Independence is the center place. And a spot for the temple is lying westward upon a lot which is not far from the courthouse. On August 2nd, 1831, the land of Zion was dedicated. And on August 3rd, 1831, the prophet Joseph dedicated the temple site. Then came the practical command of the Almighty. Behold, it is wisdom that the land should be purchased by the saints, that they might obtain it for an everlasting inheritance. Section 57. Subsequently, they began to purchase Zion with donated money. In that first year, 1831, Bishop Partridge expended about $1,200 in buying tracts of land to settle the saints upon and build their city of hope. And who was the first principal donor? The man who at the Lord's command laid his monies at the feet of the bishop, $1,200 he gave in 1831, and first paid for the foundations of Zion? <laughs> Martin Harris the same man who paid for the Book of Mormon's printing. Say what you want. But I believe the day will come when you'll meet Martin before the judgment bar of God. Hundreds of thousands of immigrants made their way over the Oregon-California Trail in the 19th century. It has been variously estimated between three and 500,000 immigrants came over that trail. Of all those companies, very few are as famous as the one that I'm about to describe. 
Most of that company set sail from Liverpool, England, May the 4th, 1856, on board the ship Thornton. It was July 12th, 1856, when they were formed into a company in Iowa. James was appointed their captain. He was 44 years old, and having been over the trail twice before, he was among the more experienced. Numerous delays created something of a perfect storm for the immigrants. They were leaving too late in the year, but neither was there a place for them to spend the winter. Couldn't stay in Iowa. Couldn't stay on the Missouri winter quarters. Their only choice really was to go on. So in faith, they gave themselves to God and decided to move on. It was August 16, 1856, when they jumped off onto the plains with over 1,000 miles to go. And then, Sunday, October 19, 1856, just after midday, snow and howling wind caught the immigrants on one of the most desolate and exposed portions of the trail. Their already difficult circumstances were now deadly. Word came that a rescue party was somewhere ahead of them, but where were they and why didn't they come? It was cold. The snow was deep and the wind was fierce. The company was out of food and people were dying every day. Now I ask you for just a moment. Look into your imagination. If you have been to Fifth Crossing or Ice Slough or Sixth Crossing, Wyoming, and you can imagine what that looks like in the winter, and imagine all those hundreds of people out there with no clothing against the weather, out of food, and dying daily. Imagine the test of human will and courage. With all of that, their captain decided that he had to do something. He would go in search of the rescuers that were somewhere up ahead. So he and a friend, Joseph Elder, ventured off into the snowbound wilderness, having no idea where these rescuers were. They left the sixth crossing on the Sweetwater, went up and over Rocky Ridge, and still didn't find him. Down the other side, 27 miles later, just at nightfall, they came across a signboard stuck in the snow moments before. They followed it and found the rescuer's camp. Had Harvey Clough not placed that sign, the captain and Joseph likely would have not found the rescuers in time to save the company. They would have rode on ahead until by weariness, exhaustion, and exposure, they would have starved and frozen. Moreover, had that intrepid captain not braved his way into the storm in search of help, his people would have surely died. That captain was Captain James G. Willie of the Willie Handcart Company. Quote, 
our captain, said George Cunningham, did his duty. He was badly frozen and came very close to dying. He showed us all a noble example. He was furnished a mule to ride on our start from Iowa City, but he said, I will never get on its back. I shall show the example, you follow it. And he did so, and the captains of hundreds followed him. They would crowd on ahead to be the first into the streams to help the women and children across, end of quote. We all loved Captain Willie, wrote Mary Huron. He was kind and considerate and did all that he could do for the comfort of those in his company, end of quote. In the end, 74 people perished in the Willie Company. They and the Martin Company behind them came to be seen, at first, as examples of failure and embarrassment for most of the 19th century. But then, time rightly redirected the spotlight to illuminate not their failure, but their faithfulness. Today, Captain Willie, Captain Martin, and all those that were with them. They are a shining standard of what it means to be true and faithful to the very end. In my mind and to my imagination, Captain Willie, by that ride, is a great hero, along with Joseph the Elder. Now, this last story troubles some people. But it, too, is one that has been on my mind a great deal. And I share with you now in hopes that perhaps there is a truth here that may benefit you. Like you, I have wondered many times why good people have to suffer. And oftentimes, as you know, more intensely and more frequently than the ungodly of this world. Recently, I learned something that began with Job. Job in the Old Testament said to his friends, Hold your peace. Let me alone that I may speak, and let come on me what will. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job 13. What trials had already come on Job? Do you remember? Well, First of all, his worldly wealth was taken from him. Then his children, seven sons and three daughters, were killed all at once. That right there would do me under. I could not, could not bear it. Job similarly was so struck with grief and loss that he shaved his head and fell to the ground in the agony of worship and humility. But for him, it was not over yet. He was then afflicted with boils over the whole of his body that itched so badly that he was forced to scratch himself with a broken piece of pottery just for a measure of relief. As he sat in the ashes in abject humility, his wife, the one person who should have been his comfort comes and reviles him like an enemy. And finally, we find Job outside of the city, sitting in the dirt and filth of the community garbage dump, 
reviled by his wife, and cursed by his friends. He literally stinks so bad, no one can come close to him. Now, consider his words. Quote, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. End of quote. Why would he say, though he slay me, meaning God? Because he was. Who was Job attributing his afflictions to? Who was he crediting with his pain? God. And yet he blesses, as it were, the very hand that is killing him and even submits all the way unto death. Now, I know the devil had his hand on him. But when God has the power to deliver him, by speaking a word and does not, who bears blame? Now, if you will, go forward with me in time to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, and it was not drama, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. You know what happened. The cup was not removed. From whence came that terrible cup of atoning agony. It came from the Father. It was the Father who called Jesus to Gethsemane and to die on the cross. It was the Father who was hurting him for all of us. And yet Jesus, being in an agony with the divine weight of it all, prayed more earnestly. To whom? to the Father, the very person who, as it were, was killing him. As it was with Jesus, so it was with Job, Abraham, Joseph, and so many others. The more the Father hurt them or allowed them to be hurt, the more powerfully and prayerfully they submitted. When Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done, it was not, all right, I'll do it your way, but I don't like it and I don't want to. No, it wasn't that at all. It was, if this is thy will, then it is my will too. I want to do it. I welcome it. Bring it on. You have the wisdom, the power, the knowledge. Thy will be done and all obstacles removed. My dear friends, one of the purposes of intense trial is to give us the opportunity to submit to the Almighty. Now, why is it so important that we submit? Sometime back, I had to severely chastise one of my teenage daughters. I have five daughters. There were things that this dear daughter was doing that were so serious as that if left unchecked would destroy her future. She couldn't see it, but I could. Her mother could. If she would be stopped, I had to try and stop her. So I came down on her with more force not physically, 
but more force than I've ever punished any of my seven children. I made life absolutely miserable for her, not for a few days, but for weeks. I suppose I was to her and any other observer from the distance the meanest father in ten states. As the heat turned up and the burden came down, I watched anxiously to see what this beloved daughter would do. Now, you have to know that this girl is no pushover. She is as strong-willed and stubborn as the pioneer stock she comes from. Would she rebel and fight me? She could have, and I wouldn't have been able to stop her. I have to tell you, I watched anxiously, and I prayed for her. I hope you'll understand when I say that one of the greatest joys of being a dad here and hereafter has to be watching one of your children bow her head in submission and say, yes, daddy, what do you want me to do? So it is with God. In love, he punishes and he corrects. He chastises and tries us. Call, pick whatever word you want. The outcome is the same, that he might prepare us for power and glory. And how great is his joy when we bow the knee and say, Yes, Father, not my will with limitations be done, but thine be done. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.